We all probably have a certain image in our minds of what the word protest means. Big demonstrations in the street, marches, direct action, and violence at times. But today, we're going to talk about a different kind of protest. Not one based on action, but one based on inaction. Today, we're talking about strikes. Specifically, we're going to talk about the 1936 UAW strike in Flint, Michigan that rocked the world. We'll discuss the importance of this strike, how people experienced it at the time, and its lasting effects on the American labor movement. We'll also talk about the numerous tactics the state used to crush the strike, up to and including raids by police armed with tear gas and guns. This is Collective Memory, a podcast about history, collective consciousness, and the forces that drive current events. I'm your host, Nick Gatlin. This episode is part two of a three-part series on protest, civil unrest, and police response in the United States. Today, we're talking about the Flint sit-down strike of 1936-1937. To fully understand the impact of the strike, we're going to have to dive into some labor history. During World War I, the labor movement in America was in a strange place. Socialism was an ever-present specter, class struggle was more real and visceral than ever, and the radical industrial workers of the World Union was growing in popularity every day. The Socialist Party, and indeed the Socialist Movement as a whole, was stridently opposed to the war. In part because of this anti-war stance, Socialists faced a sustained campaign of resistance from the state. The Espionage Act, which became law in June 1917, prohibited any American from, quote, causing or attempting to cause insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the military. Though it nominally respected the right to criticize the government, in reality the act was used to imprison Americans who spoke out against the war. Not long after the law passed, socialist Charles Schenck was arrested after protesting the Conscription Act, arguing it violated the 13th Amendment's prohibition against involuntary servitude. When Schenck appealed his conviction to the Supreme Court, the decision upheld his sentence by a unanimous vote, with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes writing his famous, quote, shouting fire in a crowded theater analogy as a justification for the conviction. One was allowed to protest the government, he said, but protesting against the war, as Schenck did, presented a, quote, clear and present danger to public safety that Congress had the right to restrict. Eugene Debs, the famous socialist activist and orator, was also convicted under the Espionage Act for giving an anti-draft speech to a crowd of draft-age men. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and the Supreme Court again unanimously upheld an Espionage Act conviction with the reasoning that Debs' speech had the, quote, natural and intended effect to obstruct military recruiting efforts. Forty-eight industrial workers of the world meeting halls were raided by the Justice Department in September 1917, with literature and correspondence seized for use as evidence. 165 IWW workers were arrested on charges of conspiring to obstruct the draft, and all were found guilty. Both parties, Republican and Democratic, saw the socialist movement as the largest internal threat facing the country. In summer 1919, President Wilson's advisor, Joseph Tumulty, wrote, It depresses me to see, growing steadily from day to day, under our very eyes, a movement that, if it is not checked, is bound to express itself in attack upon everything we hold dear. In this era of industrial and social unrest, both parties are in disrepute with the average man. 
Near the end of the war, Congress passed a law allowing for the deportation of non-citizen immigrants who opposed, quote, organized government or supported the destruction of property. One of those deported was Emma Goldman, a well-known anarchist who was taken to the recently created Soviet Union. In January 1920, 4,000 people were detained in the U.S. and were deported after taking part in secret hearings and having been held in solitary confinement. The war had sparked a wave of patriotic, pro-government sentiment that determined some forms of dissent, protest, and organized resistance were unacceptable. Immediately after the war, the labor movement attempted to regroup. The majority of the IWW leadership was in prison, and the more radical socialist unions had a difficult time working with the comparatively moderate American Federation of Labor. It was Seattle, however, where the labor movement found its footing again. In 1919, when the war had barely ended, the Seattle Central Labor Council voted for a citywide general strike. The idea had come about when 35,000 shipyard workers struck for a wage increase, and the workers appealed to the council for support. Soon, 110 locals, mostly AFL, voted the strike. On February 6, 1919, at 10 a.m., the city ground to a halt. All major activity in Seattle was shut down, except for a few jobs the strike committee approved to meet basic needs. The strikers set up 35 neighborhood milk stations, prepared 30,000 meals a day to transport all over the city, and created the Labor War Veterans Guard to keep peace in the city, without any force. A blackboard at its headquarters read, quote, No volunteer will have any police power or be allowed to carry weapons of any sort, but to use persuasion only. Crime went down in Seattle during the strike. One army commander told the committee he hadn't seen a city, quote, so quiet and orderly in his 40 years of military service. In response to the strike, the mayor swore in 2,400 deputies from the University of Washington, and nearly 1,000 soldiers were sent to Seattle by the federal government. The strike was peaceful, but when it ended after five days, 39 members of the IWW were arrested for being, quote, ringleaders of anarchy. The mayor of Seattle and the entire political establishment were terrified of what the strike symbolized. The mayor said afterward, quote, the Seattle strike was an attempted revolution. That there was no violence does not alter the fact. Revolution, I repeat, doesn't need violence. The general strike, as practiced in Seattle, is of itself the weapon of revolution, all the more dangerous because quiet. The 1920s were a decade of extravagance, mania, and greed. Speculation in the economy was rampant, with bubbles appearing left and right. The Roaring Twenties earned their name as the decade brought technological innovations like the radio, the personal car, and the refrigerator. Unemployment dropped from over 4 million in 1921 to just over 2 million in 1927. Wages generally went up. The economy was just strong enough to quell some of the socialist rumblings that had so captivated the nation just a decade earlier. The IWW was in shambles, and the Socialist Party was a shell of its former self. The 20s also brought with them the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, a surge in anti-immigrant sentiment and accompanying legal restrictions, and the budding black nationalist movement led by Marcus Garvey. But those are all topics deserving of their own episodes. What we're going to focus on here are the people that were left out of the 1920s. Who were the people who didn't get to experience the roaring part of the decade, who were still economically disadvantaged? 
In the 20s, wealth was concentrated in a wealthy few. While manufacturing wages in the 20s went up by 1.4% per capita, stockholders gained 16.4% annually. 42% of families made less than $1,000 a year, and one-tenth of 1% of the wealthiest families made more per year than those bottom 42% combined, according to the Brookings Institution. But for anyone trying to organize the poor and working class in the 1920s, there was a problem. The economy was good enough. Income inequality was at staggering highs, but the average person got by just well enough not to worry about it too much. The fiery discontent of the Great War period had all but dissipated. When the stock market crashed in 1929 due to the aforementioned wild speculation, it brought the whole economy down with it. President Herbert Hoover had said right before the crash, quote, We in America today are nearer to the final triumph over poverty than ever before in the history of any land. The crash dashed those hopes. The Great Depression fed into long-standing socialist critiques of the capitalist economy, namely that capitalism was a fundamentally flawed system creating wild swings between boom and bust, driven by the profit motive, and therefore it was the architect of its own destruction. But what the Depression did was more than just confirm the theories of socialist activists. It radicalized everyday workers. People were desperate in the 1930s. John Steinbeck, in his novel The Grapes of Wrath, described economic refugees fleeing to California as, quote, hard, intent, and dangerous. In Arkansas, January 1931, around 500 farmers stormed the grocery stores in the business district of town after a long drought, quote, shouting they must have food for themselves and their families, as one newspaper reported. In Indiana, August 1931, a report read, quote, 1,500 jobless men stormed the plant of the Fruit Growers Express Company here, demanding that they must be given jobs to keep from starving. The company's answer was to call the city police, who routed the jobless with menacing clubs. In June 1932, 25 children stole from a buffet at a Boston parade. They were taken away by police. The country was at a breaking point. Ordinary workers who had never had socialist inclinations in their life were suddenly questioning the institutions they lived under, demanding food and jobs and violently clashing with authorities. Who could tell what would happen next? It was in these conditions that the sit-down strike of 1936-1937 occurred. The labor movement in the pre-Depression period had learned what it could do with the power it wielded. It also learned of the extraordinary lengths the state would go to in order to suppress class consciousness and crush any budding protest movements that might upend the establishment. But with the onset of the Depression, America was set with a revolutionary fervor not seen since the Civil War. The economy had failed. Workers all across the country realized they held the real key to power, and they intended to use it. The United Automobile Workers of America was founded in 1935 by 200 auto worker delegates meeting in Detroit. Many auto workers were dissatisfied with the AFL, wanting to name their own leaders. These were days when history changed its course. The sit-down strikes began on December 30th. They began with the attempt of GM to move the dies at Fisher No. 1 to Grand Rapids and elsewhere. Already in early 1936, workers at a Firestone rubber plant in Akron, Ohio took part in a sit-down strike, and one in the face of a court injunction against picketing. 
The tide was beginning to turn in auto workers' favor, and UAW workers were quick to join in. In November 1936, two brothers at the General Motors Fisher Body Plant in Cleveland, Ohio, were fired. This sparked a strike at that plant, and soon UAW workers at GM plants everywhere decided to strike. Within two weeks, about 135,000 workers in 14 states were striking at General Motors plants. The Fisher Body Plant No. 1 in Flint, Michigan struck too. On December 30, 1936, the longest sit-down strike of all took place in that factory, with about 2,000 workers occupying the plant for 44 days. The strike officially began that evening, when the night workers stopped loading dyes that GM was transporting to parts of the country with weaker unions. GM executives were surprised by the strike, as they considered their workers as some of the most, quote, pampered in the auto industry. The environment inside the plant was remarkably similar to the tone of the 1919 Seattle General Strike. Committees were formed among the workers, which organized recreational activities, an internal postal service, and a sanitation crew. They decided punishments for workers who slacked off on their chores, and established courts to settle disputes and determine a worker's innocence or guilt of the offense. Graduate students from the University of Michigan taught journalism and creative writing classes, and other workers taught classes about labor history, parliamentary procedure, and public oratory. A restaurant across the street prepared food for all 2,000 strikers every day. On January the 4th, the union submitted a complete list of grievances. We asked for a national General Motors agreement, for day rates and the abolition of the hated piecework system, for seniority, for recognition of the union, for control of speed-up, for grievance procedures, for the reinstatement of all the men who had been fired for union activity and for a 30-hour week. GM said no to everything. Widely separated workers, workers who didn't know each other, workers who didn't know each other's names, men who had been divided, weak and oppressed, came together in union and in solidarity. A crowd of 150,000 supporters of the strike came out to demonstrate in Cadillac Square and other unions struck in solidarity with the Flint workers. The Fisher No. 2 plant, also in Flint, decided to strike as well, prompting GM to turn off the heat in the factory during the bitter cold of the Michigan winter. On January 11th, Flint police attempted to stop food deliveries into the plant. That caused a riot, with 16 strikers and 11 police injured in the fight. Many of the injuries were from buckshot the police shot the strikers with. Strikers threw projectiles from the factory. The workers used fire hoses and milk bottles to drive back the police. They were met with tear gas and guns. Eventually, the wind shifted, blowing the tear gas back at the police officers, who retreated when the crowd of sympathizers guarded the factory. The strikers had won back control of the factory gates. It was a bitter winter in January. Flint was the valley forge of the people who work in the plants. These were times when the summer soldiers fell away, and the winter soldiers stood up in a terrible trial. Armchair generals and colonels were demanding that the National Guardsmen go into those plants and shoot the sit-downers out. But for once, the National Guard truly maintained law and order. The strikers were disciplined, but the Flint City government was a General Motors government after all, and General Motors insisted, so the police tried to evict the sit-downers. This is not vandalism you see there. They are breaking these windows to let the air in and to let the tear gas out.
Governor Frank Murphy made his disdain for the strike known, saying, quote, Peace and order will prevail. The people of Flint are not going to be terrorized. He called up 4,000 National Guard troops, but didn't bring himself to use them against the strikers, a notable shift from the dark days of the 1910s. On January 29th, GM won an injunction against the strikers. The judge who granted the order, however, owned $150,000 in GM stock, and the strikers flatly ignored him. On February 1st, at the Chevrolet plant number 4 in Flint, 500 union workers entered the factory complaining of discrimination against union members after the union attempted to get the 6,000 day shift workers to join the strike. The plant had resumed production shortly beforehand after some workers decided to go back to work. The union workers began to break the factory windows and there were reports that tear gas and other projectiles were thrown. 1,200 National Guardsmen formed a bayoneted ring of steel, the Detroit News reported, and machine guns were placed in strategic locations around the factory. The Union version of events was a bit different than the enforced peace the governor described. They said that, quote, company police and hundreds of thugs armed with tear gas pistols, tear gas bombs, blackjacks, and clubs manufactured in the Chevrolet woodshop attacked all workers in the plant using floods of tear gas. The guard blocked all food deliveries into the plant, and the workers decided to take part in a hunger strike until their families could deliver them food, or until their demands were met. But at last, Governor Murphy's perseverance paid off. General Motors agreed to recognize the UAW and not in any way to discriminate against the strikers. On its side, the union agreed to terminate the strike and evacuate all the plants. Well, the strike has ended, thanks to these good men who are about me here. The peace will be a lasting one, because it was brought about without force and violence. I trust it will mean a new mutual atmosphere of goodwill and good faith between employer and employee. Union recognition. Here it was in writing. The mightiest industrial corporation of the world had been whipped to its knees. The workers had finally won, and a big series of battles were to follow. But the big one, the climatic thing, had already transpired. General Motors had knuckled under. It took President Roosevelt personally appealing to General Motors for the company to come back to the negotiating table. After 44 days, the union won sole bargaining rights at the 17 GM plants affected by the strike, a 5% pay raise for the workers, a non-discrimination guarantee for union workers, and a promise to negotiate on other issues. The Flint strike was the first successful strike against one of the big three auto companies, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. It represented a shift in the labor movement, transforming it from a pariah to an institution to be respected. Unions had proven they could successfully break into big industries, shifting at least some power back to the workers. To be sure, the Flint strike did not achieve the ambitious goals of the IWW or similar organizations. The UAW was not and is not a socialist union. But what the strike did was show workers in the United States and across the world that workers could fight back against the companies, the police, and even the military and win. The halt in production at a GM plant was so dire that the National Guard was sent in with bayonets and machine guns to crush the strike. The company hired private police to drive the workers out. 
Just as the 1919 Seattle general strike showed the world that workers could shut down a city, the Flint strike showed them that workers could shut down an entire industry. A strike is a protest. It's tinged with class warfare, yes, but many protests are. A recurring theme in American protest throughout all periods of the nation's history is the counter-reaction. When workers wanted to peacefully protest for fewer hours and higher wages, they did what they could. They stopped working. They established a small community based on mutual aid. They connected with the community to bring in food and water and taught each other about the history of the labor movement. What did the company and the state do? They tried to starve them, freeze them, and kill them. Remember the words of the mayor of Seattle in 1919. Revolution, I repeat, doesn't need violence. The general strike, as practiced in Seattle, is of itself the weapon of revolution, all the more dangerous because quiet. This has been Collective Memory, a production of the PSU Pacific Sentinel. Howard Zinn's A People's History of America was heavily used for research in the background notes. Special thanks to the Detroit News, the New York Times, University of Chicago's Critical History Studies, and the UAW and BBC for archival news footage. Thanks for listening.